Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Exchanges, a Cambridge University Press podcast, a joint production of Cambridge University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with Carl Nightingale, author of the book Earthopolis, a biography of our urban planet. Carl, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you. Good to see you today. <laughs> no, good to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. So I've been a professor um, of world history and urban history for about 25 years, and I've taught the big course in world history for many of those years, almost all of them, um, at the University of Massachusetts for a short while at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and then at the University of Buffalo for quite some time. I also um, have been active in a group of urban historians who wanted to think about their topic in, re- uh, in relationship to global history more, since urban historians tend to focus uh, deeply on individual cities. We wanted to think about cities in their broader contexts and how they are both created and create world history. So I've helped to create a network called the Global Urban History Project, which has about 500 colleagues working together on issues um, related to those uh, questions. And then finally, I've been a um, housing justice and climate justice activist for um, pretty much all my academic career, uh, going back to uh, Philadelphia, but more, most seriously in Buffalo, where um, I taught for many years um, as part of the, as a volunteer and then as part of the board of directors of Push Buffalo, which um, uh, builds affordable and sustainable housing in the west side of Buffalo with the ultimate goal of taking the entire neighborhood off the hydrocarbon grid. It, it, the, your description of your background is fascinating because as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about how so many of those elements are represented in your book. What led you to undertake uh, this book project, especially a book of this scope? Because it, it's such an, an enormous book. It's, it's, it's not just a large book, but it's, it's, it's a vast book in terms of the scope. And it's, it's, it's a scope that, it, that it strikes me as being uh, intimidating. What led you to, to undertake that challenge? Yes. Well, so this this book project fits into a, a you know, longer arc in my own thinking and research and I think ultimately theorizing about the role of cities in world history um, that goes back to um, a period in the 1990s when as um, an Americanist, I was being uh, American historian, uh, trained as an American historian, I was being told to think about how America fit into the world uh, more. And that uh, led to a second book of, after my dissertation that focused um, on the issue of segregation as a world historical phenomenon. And um, this was just an, this is an opportunity that Cambridge University Press more or less put in my lap to take, to extend that a little bit further, to think about cities as creators and creations of world history. At the same time, it's also a kind of pedagogical project because, as I said, I've been teaching world history for a long time, and uh, that always puts me in a frame of mind of trying to figure out what's what are the big frames of history. And so um, this 
actually began in some sense as a this book began as an effort to write you know the best possible lectures I could write about global urban history from the origins of cities to the present. And it, in fact, it has 25 chapters, and that's what makes it sort of maybe bulky. Um, I tend to think that it runs along pretty quickly if you read it, uh, if you take it up, pick it up and read it. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but, you know, uh, the 25 lectures correspond more or less to two lectures a week for a 13-week uh, semester, 14-week semester, which is sort of typical in the United States. Um, and I sort of imagine that then people who are not in college taking a course like this could nonetheless pick the book up as a course like that, very cheap one, I should say, and um, make their way through the the, the, um, the lectures as they see fit. And there's always a way of reading a biography on the beach um, from cover to cover, which I know a lot of people like to do, and you can do that as well. But this is this is what, uh, one piece that uh, I wanted to um, make available, and then. You know, for for us as scholars, I think urban historians, um, I, I, I think, I, I was hoping anyway, that this would allow urban historians to get, who, who know a big part of world history, but maybe not parts of it, bits and pieces of it, to kind of have a bigger frame for the work that they're doing. More and more of us are doing uh, studies on two cities at once or three cities at once or connections between cities or looking at a nation full of cities or a region full of cities or a way in which two regions of cities um, interact with one another. And this, the idea of this was to put the longest and widest um, possible frame around that, not the only narrative that could be told on this subject or in this in this way by any stretch. I think there's infinite ways of telling the story, but it was my way of telling the story. And um so uh, that that I hope will, will help as well. And then uh, finally, there's a third third thing that's emerged as I wrote it, which is more of a theoretical project. What is a city, um, and uh, what what do they allow us to do? Uh, what what do, what position do they put us in here um, in the 21st century when we're facing basically the biggest existential crisis? in human history. Uh, so there's, as you can see, maybe maybe a pedagogical, maybe a scholarly or more research oriented piece to it. And then also a kind of theoretical and maybe even, you know, political piece that's um, that's imbued in the um, in the narrative as as you go through it. It's the conceptual approach that you take it is is one that I've never really contemplated before. But you start by this notion of you know, as the title, you know, to draw from the title, the Earthopolis, the idea of us as an urban planet, which is a concept which has both a, a, a is both a, a recent phenomenon, but also has these roots that go back, you know, as you describe in the book, you know, six millennia. I was wondering if you could perhaps start us off by talking about the notion of our planet as an urban planet and and and, and what, you know, the, the elements of this of this Earthopolis are. Yes. Yeah, so, I, I mean, part of this comes from uh, urban theory, where there's been a, a lot of discussion, very fierce discussion, I should say, over the concept of planetary urbanization. I thought I, I, I read a lot of that and uh, we'll be responding to it in another Cambridge publication, hopefully within a year or so. Um, and that's very super interesting stuff. Um, but I thought I'd bring it down a little bit of a notch um, from the abstract and try to um, understand um, 
uh, cities as, again, as creators and creations of world history. And at the same time, to think of cities as only one part of what we call the urban, because cities rely on much bigger areas um, that are filled with non-cities, um, everything from towns and villages to pastures and farmland and uh, mines and woodlots and clay pits and quarries and so on and so forth um, to, to exist. They're what we call urban hinterlands. And I think it's, it's useful to call hinterlands urban, even though they aren't cities. And more importantly, and maybe a little bit challengingly, I also feel like cities enable us to do things that we couldn't do as humans in smaller settlements. Now, it's not to say that we couldn't do very big things in small settlements, and the prologue makes a strong case that small settlements allowed us to populate all six continents, to invent agriculture, to domesticate animals on a large scale long before there were cities. There are other things that recent architect, archaeologists and you know, paleoanthropologists are finding out that we can do in those spaces, including regulate the environment as a whole. Uh, for example, the entire continent, um, say Australia, we could do all those things from those smaller places. But once we started uh, gathering in cities in much bigger places, larger, more concentrated places, we were also drawing in a lot more energy, natural energy, uh, ultimately coming from the sun, often mediated by the atmosphere, and then numerous other physical features in the and, and biological features of our planet itself. We're bringing all that energy into cities, and there's just so much more that we can do in uh, as city dwellers than we could as smaller uh, dwellers of smaller settlements. And uh, it's that that I think gives cities, in some sense, a kind of causal force of their own on world history. They're spaces, they're inhabited, they're designed all around the exercise of human power. So if we, if we agree on that, then we have to know where that power is being exercised and what spaces it occupies. And it's, it's, it's in that uh, context that I in, um, kind of, uh, or I said, I said to myself, well, um, how, or, or, and how, can, how can we prove that, I should say? How can we prove that we're, 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 we're making these, um, these, taking these big, um, larger scale amplified um, forms of uh, deployment of, of power. And I, I came up with four ways in which we can kind of look into the historical record and see that these cities are, are, are giving us that, that, um, that ability. And the four areas are the realm of action, that is any space that is taken up by actions that we take in cities, whether it's creating a state, creating an empire, creating a corporation or a mercantile um, house, creating a social movement um, that goes possibly against the state or corporate uh, entity, um, centers of knowledge production and technological advance, technologies themselves, um, and you know our very own um, acts of reproduction. Do we reproduce more or less? Do we... Um, uh, do we uh, move more or less? So cities allow us to do all of those things 
I believe on larger scales and more intense scales, more powerful scales. So um, it's, uh, that's, that's the realm of action. The second one is once we build a big city, even a, even a medium-sized city, we have to build more villages. We have to build more towns. We have to build more farms, uh, woodlots, and so on and so forth in the hinterlands. And uh, so our habitat grows alongside um, every time we build more cities. So the realm of habitat is another area where we can, where, which is the consequence as much as it is the, the cause of, of city building. So that's another realm uh, that's, that's larger than cities that must be considered, at least in part, urban, or maybe we can say is usefully understood as urban. And then a third one is our impact. What is our impact beyond our own habitat on other people's, other people's, <laughs> other species habitats um, uh, and on other light, uh, other spaces beyond our, our habitat? Because they're for a long time. I think now there's not very much space beyond our habitat and beyond our impact. But for most of urban history, there was. And so we're building new uh, sort of frontiers, building, we're exceeding new uh, old boundaries of, of, our, of our reach. Um, and then last of all, there's consequences to pay for doing all these things. And those consequences themselves take up space, uh, whether it's because we are now able to uh, conduct warfare on a larger scale, we can create more death. Um, if we can uh, manage more energy. We can also create more life for us using cities, even though at the same time, we're also creating more uh, likelihood of pandemics, which increase death as well. So there's lots of consequences, both in terms of the amount of life on earth, human and otherwise, and the amount of death on earth, human or otherwise, and all those take up space as well that I think are usefully called urban. Finally, I'll say that when these four realms reach planetary dimensions, and they do, um, at different times throughout the course of history, um, then we can start to talk about an urban planet, that is, uh, an area, a planet that is entirely covered by spaces that we create as humans that, um, uh, from our actions, from our habitat itself, from our impact, or from the consequences of, of those three other things. It, it seems uh, that though it takes a long time to get to that point and and, and you a lot of these themes come across very clearly in, in your first uh section on the cities and rivers where you encapsulate this you know enormous span of time you know roughly 5500 years and and it, it's it's a perspective that that allows you to talk about the the, the process in, in in a uh it, it, where you can kind of see the big picture uh, evolving very rapidly uh, in, in, in terms of how the cities form, how these uh, cities function. So what do you exactly do you mean by the cities of the rivers? And, 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 and can you give us some examples as to how these, uh, these realms uh, you know, take form and, 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 and how we can see the consequences of that shaping world history in terms of, say, uh, the rise of empires, the, the concentration of knowledge, and, and, and the you know, development of, of, of the distinctions between uh, the wealthy and the poor? Yes. So um, let's start with the um, issue of the rivers, and that, that brings up another slightly larger um, issue to start with, um, and that is that so we have to figure out what it is that powers our hinterlands to understand what, um, how the hinterlands then power our cities. 
And I've come to think of these as almost like meta hinterlands, hinterlands of hinterlands. Um, and, uh, I, you know, the, the, these are the kind of the primary um, catchment areas, if you will, uh, or and conveyances um, uh, of, of our of geosolar energy that we as humans have have um, are able to um, tap in order to bring the energy we need in order to create a, a city. And, and I think there are, there are, there are three, we're, we're working on a fourth um, as, we, as we speak, but the, the, the three that have dominated urban history um, since the first cities are first rivers. Rivers are uh, by far the longest lasting and they still are with us as very, very important vectors of geosolar energy. What I mean by that is they bring us our food. They're very heavily responsible for our food. They're actually responsible for the very soil upon which most early cities were built. They're responsible for the the materials, often clay, that were put into the first bricks, for example, because um, uh, rivers are not just water; they're silt as well, and the silt falls uh, onto the onto the dry land as well. Um, and uh, it, they're responsible, for, obviously, for our water. And for um, uh, uh, for um, yes, uh, uh, the the energy that we bring together into um, into a city, and there also tend to be you know valleys, river valleys tend to be somewhat funnel shaped, so they tend to concentrate those forms of energy um, in areas where we can then um, reuse that for cities. So the cities of the rivers, uh, most earliest cities were founded in river valleys, not only river valleys but very narrow river valleys where um, there was fairly um, unfertile area on either side, the Euphrates, the Nile, uh, in Peru, the um, Supe River, for example, where Corral was first um, first built. Um, not all early cities were built on rivers, but the most of them were. And um, uh, many of the ones that weren't, that used, for example, only rainwater or wetlands or oases or uh, rainforests and so on, had some um, inspiration from cities that were previously built on rivers. So it's a really, really powerful um, determining aspect of, of urban history early on. Um, and so um, these these rivers, uh, you know, we were able to tap them for a huge amount of energy to the point where we could build first a 50,000 uh, a city of 50,000 in, in Uruk and Mesopotamia, much larger ones uh, in that area later on uh, in China, some of the larger cities. And then by, you know, going into the couple thousand years uh, later, 300,000 at Babylon, um, uh, a million or more at Rome, uh, maybe even two million, possibly also at Alexandria, and then other many, many more uh, million plus cities, especially in Asia, um, over the next uh, couple millennia, and most notably in China, um, possibly also in Korea and um, in Japan. So uh, these, this 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 force is, you know the ability to use uh, geosolar energy in general that was. Um, that we tapped from rivers uh, was a powerful city-making um, phenomenon, and it also allowed us to expand what I call these urban realms um, uh, of, of uh, action, of habitat, of impact and consequence quite over quite, quite large areas. At first, 
separate from one another because cities were came into being in different different regions almost entirely independently of each other, not entirely, but mo- most cases um, independently of each other over the course of a really long period of time, 5,500 years. Um, so we were building these regions of urban influence. We might call them urban worlds, as I do in the book, that were separate from each other that eventually started to m- merge by um, actions we took from empires and from mercantile actions, from movement of of cultural ambassadors um, um, and some mission missionary types and monks and scholars uh, to um, merge these worlds into um, by what became by approximately you know 1100 uh, CE, for example, a pretty co- pretty um, consistent interchange between these urban worlds across the Afro-Eurasian continent um, and some more of that in, uh, in over large areas in the Americas at the same time. So that's one way to look at this. The other thing, important thing to recognize is that geosolar energy, um, just like human institutions, are, are very volatile forces. And we know that um, now that, in fact, cities only came in being because geosolar energy itself became a little bit less volatile during what we call the Holocene period, 11,700 years, um, beginning 11,700 years ago. And that the, the, the fluctuations of, of solar energy, um, which were geophysical fluctuations having to do with how much energy there was being burned on the sun itself, uh, the differences in the orbit and the tilt of the Earth's axis and so on and so forth. Those geophysical uh, phenomenon uh, eased off uh, a little bit and made a more more, more evenly fluctuating um, uh, period called the Holocene that allowed us to do agriculture and then allowed us to build the first cities. But even in that, uh, in those fluctuations, there were periods where uh, geosolar energy fluctuated on its own uh, dramatically. Uh, on top of that, we began to, you know, uh, mess around with some of the some of the um, natural environments that we required for our cities, uh, including, you know, uh, putting in irrigation systems that may have salinated the soil uh, in Mesopotamia and eventually caused that uh, part uh, that city growing area to diminish in size for some time, actually even collapse. So there are periods of great collapse that you can find throughout the urban worlds of the um, first 5,500 years. And um, so, so any any uh, process we sometimes call it of urbanization during these times has to be thought of in, in, uh, in um, alongside a, um, many, many periods of, of uh, destruction, of collapse, of um, regression in the size of urban worlds and uh, regression in the size of cities, disappearance of whole areas of cities, the Maya, for example, um, Teotihuacan in central Mexico, um, there every, every Rome after 410, um, and much of Western Europe. Uh, so these are these are all different periods where there was um, where there was, in some sense, a fallback in the um, expand expansion of these urban worlds. And when we get to about you know, 1400 or so, there has been no time in the previous 5,000 odd years that um, that the urban covered the entire planet, except in one possible respect, 
And that is because we were so uh, build, building so many big cities in China as a, as a species, um, we required more and more agriculture. And uh, one of the ways to solve the food problem was to build um, thousands upon thousands of acres of rice paddy, which um, naturally uh, involved, you know, build, building those naturally involved the um, the release of lots of muck that um, uh, is filled with methane. And that methane may have actually stabilized the, um, the ebbs and flows of geosolar energy somewhat more, in which case we would really have had an urban planetary phenomenon uh, very early on in world history. It is, you know, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say that it is it is really interesting to to see how the connections are are, are you know being formed, how cities are becoming. You know, it, the cities have this importance early on, and but it, it's it's primarily with that one possible exception, a, a regional significance. And then you get to the second part of your book, which is the cities of the world ocean. And that's where you start, where, where you see the, the connections be, uh, of, of Earthopolis becoming, uh, you know, emerging during this period. And, and I, I, th I thought in particular about your framing uh, device of, you know, deciding, uh, of trying to determine when does this can we when can we say this process is, is truly uh underway is, is it 1492 is it 1517 uh is it 1571 when you begin the the first regular uh, uh trans-pacific uh service and, and it shows how that but it, what all this demonstrates is how you begin to see during that period how we go from where cities are, are primarily regional in their impact or local in their impact to where you start seeing that this national significance and how in turn how this globalization and uh, begins this process of transforming the cities themselves. Absolutely. So yes. So beginning in kind of the 1400s, I guess um, we start to realize that. Uh, I, I mean, I should say that the oceans and the seas had been part of urbanization from very early on, uh, especially the Indian Ocean and the, you know things like the Persian Gulf, the Red Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, all had witnessed um, cities that relied heavily on oceanic transport. Uh, Athens, for example, would be nothing without grain from Ukraine, believe it or not. Uh, speaking of a very contemporary issue, um, Athenian ships had to go up to the Don River um, and Dnieper, the Dnipro River and get, and get grain that was grown there by uh, local farmers in order to su supplement the um, very hard scrabble and relatively small hinterland um, around uh, Athens. Rome needed Egyptian grain, for example, to be to be a, a million plus city. So, uh, you know, the seas had always been part of um, uh, the, the, the source of energy. And, and what I mean by the seas, I mean, is literally the winds and the currents that are propelled by the earth and the sun um, move ships and the ships were then able to um, uh, really become an integral part of the city building um, business. And uh, so th they existed before, but there's nothing, nothing, quite, uh, um, nothing quite compares to the moment after 1492, 1517, as you say, 1571, when um, we become aware of the fact that all of these oceans and seas are actually connected and that you can go from one to the other all the way around the world. And that there are many, many, many shores 
that previously had relatively few or almost none or uh, had had cities but no longer did, uh, areas where there were only smaller scale villages and camps, for example, and lots and lots of shoreline that um, was perfectly um, suitable to building new cities. And I use Christopher Columbus as kind of the <laughs> and kind of a, a tour guide, if you will, for the second part, because in 1492 on Christmas Day, he ends up losing his Santa Maria to a uh, to a coral reef. And um, his response to it, first of all, after sobbing and being utterly despondent for a couple hours, is to realize that he could use the timbers from the Santa Maria to build a small fort there and that that would create a kind of keystone for a, uh, the global power of the king of Spain, including the reconquest of Jerusalem, which is high on his mind um, as, as a person who was trying to circumnavigate uh, Muslim um, mercantile activity and, and, and get the riches for, um, for Europe it's on its own. So, um, you know, that, 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 whole, that act of uh, establishing a fort on a, on a, in a kind of harbor from a ship. Oh, and then don't forget he had gunpowder, a Chinese invention from thousands of years before, or 500 years before, I should say, um, with him in a perfectly uh, powerful form um, in, in, in that he carried some of the latest cannon with him. Uh, so he had all this uh, power and the ocean uh, allowed um, him as well as future imperialists, enslavers, um, labor exploiters, uh, miners, um, who and settlers who followed him uh, to the Americas, and then to Australasia and other parts of Africa, to parts of um, Asia, to um, to build new cities. And many, many cities, new cities, were built from 1500 through 1780 when the uh, fossil fuels began to make their bigger impression on um, on uh, city building. But that uh, era of the oceans is distinguished by the fact that the growth was nearly contiguous, uh, sorry, nearly continuous, um, despite the fact that the worst uh, downturn in geosolar energy during the Holocene period happened during the 17th century. That's the Little Ice Age. And that lingered into the 18th and into the 19th centuries as well. So it was a pretty big blow, and many people were killed in warfare and in famine and so on and so forth during that time. But still, the population of, of you know humans on Earth doubled from about 1492 to about 1800. Um, so that's that's a kind of outward way of seeing how much energy the uh, the ocean could give to human affairs that wasn't available before that. And it's why I, can, I think we can start to speak of a truly planetary urban planet uh, once, especially after 1571, when this Spanish empire began its um, regular commercial service trading silver for um, East Asian, especially Chinese goods, um, East, uh, sorry, American silver, silver mined in the Americas across the Pacific to Manila, and from there into the uh, boats of Chinese and other Asian merchants who um, who uh, were dealing in goods from the biggest industrial society at the time, which was China. 
Um, so that that's that's a, that's a good time to see the realm of action, as you, as, I, as I put it, uh, taking on those planetary terms, those planetary size. So the, the the realm of human habitat still was, you know, quite uh, not necessarily 100% uh, influenced by urban phenomenon to that point. Um, there were many many settlements beyond the pale of urban influence. One could argue. Um, I think that boundary is quite uh, quite um, difficult to exactly um, set, but uh, you could see that that's it was expanding for sure. The, the realm of habitat um, was expanding, maybe not quite reaching planetary dimensions. The realm of um, impact was was growing, and clearly um, we can see some some aspects of that in, in the way in which. Um, some, uh, you know, the um, the habitats of several, of many different land and ocean animals were impacted pretty severely by the uh, advance of uh, this urban planet during this time. Also, we had the first global pandemic in a sense because um, the diseases that Columbus and his successors brought to the Americas um, uh, was uh, devastating to the American population of the Americas, as we know. And so the, the ocean allowed um, what had been uh, often fairly large regional or even continental um, pandemics, uh, Black Plague, for example, multi-continental pandemics, to become uh, a global phenomenon for the first time. And that gets to one of the themes that you that that recurs in your book, which is the notion of uh, cause and effect, and how these things oftentimes build upon one one another. How the uh, emergence of this global network fuels the growth of cities, but the cities themselves, as as you uh, frequently uh, return to in the book, are breeding grounds for these diseases. And once you have these global connections, these diseases now start to have a global impact. This is something that, as you point out, you know. Many of our listeners will be very familiar with today, but it's something that, as a phenomenon, is 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 a fairly recent one, and we've just seen it sort of, you know, at an accelerated pace. What what for us was a matter of years, uh, uh, just, you know, took place over uh, decades and even centuries, to, but was really not possible without you know, the the impact of the cities. And that, that was what I thought was fascinating: how these cities have this this impact out of all. Uh, out of all proportion to say the percentage of the population that's living there, it's still very much a rural uh, economy. It's still very much of a of a rural society. But these cities are are are, are just you know really punching above their weight in terms of the percentage of the population and their and their impact upon their their the world. Absolutely, and I think it's, it's something we take a little bit for granted as world historians, the fact that we're you know the cities were invented. You know, six thousand years ago, we sort of say take that for granted as as kind of there all the time. But um, once you know, I, I, so part of the, the deal of the book is to try to you know bring back cities as a, a kind of causal forces of their own, as I've said before. Yes, um, their their cause and their effect. Um, they they create opportunities for new things, and um, they um, serve as the you know the the in some sense the the batteries for that those activities the power tools that make those activities happen the stages on which they happen um, they're they're just they're just ubiquitous in that in that regard every chapter though as you mentioned starts with a with a kind of um, 
cause that causes effects and that where effects become causes on their own. Um, so a kind of circular uh, um, multi, I like to call it multi-electrical kind of dynamic that is uh, something that builds upon each, uh, builds upon um, itself. And each time cities do something new, they also become very different in their own right. So a good example is cities invention in some sense of, of global capitalism. Global capitalism um, is addicted to cities. It, can, it cannot do uh, without um, without cities and without all kinds of different urban spaces that um, need to be adapted to its various different needs. And so I pick up this idea that I borrowed from David Harvey of, of the, the spatial fix. That is, capitalists always run into problems with um, their, their task, which is basically to amass as much wealth as they uh, possibly can uh, in order to give back to their, um, to their shareholders as they were invented in the, in the early 1600s. And um, so they, they need lots of different kinds of, of urban spaces to do that. Now, you can, you can imagine some of them shipyards and ports and harbors and, and, um, and so on. Those things need to be built and they need to be able to build up um, larger for larger ships. Um, they need weapons. Um, so they need uh, military industrial complexes, all of which are extremely expensive to build and they require state help. Um, so those kinds of things, every merchant ship that went into the Indian Ocean, every merchant ship like Columbus's Santa Maria that landed in the Americas all had lots and lots of cannons. So you need cannon foundries and so on and so forth. Um, but, you know, the ocean itself is a solution to um, a lot of these uh, issues that capitalists face. You know, it's, it's a quick, uh, it's, 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 it's fluid. You can, you can move your way through it. It's got winds and currents that can push your ships along, um, which is all great. Except that it also, you know, it's it's a gamble. The the ocean can be too strong for those ships and send them careening towards the rocks, as they did on countless occasions every day uh, during the, uh, you know, from 1400 to the present, and just as they did, you know, in ancient times as well. Shipwrecks were very, very common. So you needed to invent something called an insurance company, a maritime insurance company, which needed a building, which needed capital, which needed um uh, people to, you know, uh, lots of wealthy people to be in the same place, which meant a city. Similarly, you needed corporate headquarters to oversee these very complicated deals that were being put together. You needed stock exchanges. You needed, ultimately, national banks, according to the British um, in London in the 1790s when they built the first uh, national bank on Threadneedle Street in London that um, put out more money um, in, in terms of paper than was actually available in the economy at the time with a bet that it would it would ultimately um, become uh, valuable because the economy would grow uh, as a result. So those, those kinds of bets uh, on the ocean, on money, on uh, also on urban real estate, which became more and more valuable because more and more rich people were moving into those cities in the smaller areas in small areas. Um, and began expanding those cities uh, everywhere along the way, there was new opportunities for wealth and capitalism could not do with all of that city generated wealth. And as I hope my narrative saying is that cities changed in shape as that wealth was accumulated. And 
you have the, with that, they, of course, their, their demands grow. And that's another part of, of, of the section that I thought was fascinating was, was how they were coping with it. And of course, what proves to be the real game changer and, and leads to the, the final period you described is the embrace of hydrocarbon, which comes in the form of coal, which really solves this problem that you described throughout the book, where these cities bring about such great local deforestation to the point where Rome no longer becomes a port, to the point where uh, you, you have uh, you know, riots breaking out because they, they, and people are fighting over over supplies of wood. Coal solves a lot of those problems, but uh, of course, you know, it, it brings two problems of its own that these cities then have to learn to cope with. Right. Yeah. So part of the one of the kind of fun arguments I think I, I make in the in the book has to do with that that transition to hydrocarbon, which is a, a fairly quick uh, uh, transition in global historical terms, but happens more slowly and more contingently. That is more. Um, you know, there are a lot more plot twists in that story than we often give it credit for. We often think, okay, you know, we found coal and then therefore we have, you know, rocket ships and airplanes and everything like that today. Uh, my, my, my telling the story is a lot more, um, a lot more ragged than that. And, uh, you know, and, and, and jerky and herky. And, um, uh, but, but, but it's, it's true that, that um, once you started building this much wealth um, in cities of the oceans, um, there, there became new, new questions about exactly, how, you know, how you're going to, how are you going to fuel, how are you going to heat cities in cold places and rainy places, um, such as Britain where, um, or China or many other places, um, when, you know, your supply of wood was either limited or, um, eventually, you know, if it wasn't limited, it just required more transportation um, and higher costs to bring it in per calorie. And Great Britain had the had a, the ultimate spatial fix in its own backyard because coal, it turns out, just you know, dumped onto the beaches of north of Newcastle um, in the Newcastle area um, up up in the northern part of England, and it was relatively easy to pick up all the ground, and you could put it into grain ships that already existed, and you could bring it down and, and, and um, use it. And Londoners had been using coal, especially artisans, had been using coal for quite some time. But when the price of, of wood grew during the 16th century, during uh, Shakespeare's time especially, and shortly after, um, the uh, the uh, coal coal um, merchants began to find that they could they could undersell uh, wood in um, per you know in pounds and pence per per calorie um, and uh, more people began to switch to that um, to to stave off their um, the the cold but also to use it in all kinds of different um, Industries and artisan, uh, artisanal occupations, and so coal became the fuel of choice for home heating and artisanal work in London. Um, in a way that it, you know, it had in other cities long before, including in China, well before, uh, well before this, but never so cheaply and never so connected to such a really thrumming oceanic economy as as it was in in London. And um, the um, simultaneous ability of British farmers to respond to that uh, fact that these cities were growing quickly, in part because they had this cheap coal, um, meant that uh, you could 
you could feed these cities as well, clothe them. And um, once that happened, then you could get a lot of people, more people to join the cities from the countryside and, um, you know, use coal for various different reasons. But at the same time, as that happened, the price of labor in these hot economies went up and the price of coal being cheap, especially close to the coal seams that were now in, you know, even not just ones on the, on the beach, but inside, inside uh, in the interior of, of Britain, um, meant that you had cheap, a lot of cheap energy and a lot of uh, expensive laborers. And so you began to look, uh, capitalists began to um, be forced to look in Britain, unlike anywhere else really at the time, to uh, technologies that would uh, enable um, enable uh, you know more productivity um, at uh, lower labor costs, and they turned to coal as the as the as the main uh, fuel for those uh, machines, which eventually included you know the the first steam engines. So um, that that whole story is a really interesting one connected to the ocean. Um, Thomas Newcomen, for example, who was the inventor of the or one of the inventors of the first steam engine was himself uh, somebody who um, uh, was part of a mercantile family that earned most of its wealth in the ocean but they turned it towards various different services that it involved for, for coal mining and when they did that they also came to know that it was expensive to take water out of mine shafts and uh, his first steam engine was actually a pump a, a way of pumping uh, water out of Mine shafts that later on, of course, as we know, were repurposed for various different other tasks, um, having to do with increasing uh, the industrial production in factories. So that that whole transition is a is a major point in the in the book. And of course, once we started tapping, uh, once we sort of made a bargain, as it were, with the underworld of hydrocarbon, we could build a lot, lot more cities uh, a lot faster. They grew a lot bigger, um, and we could move stuff in between cities a lot more. And um, they could, um, yes, they demanded a lot more labor power. So um, we got what's really a first kind of great acceleration during the 19th century, mostly in Europe and in the, then in North America and then uh, in Japan, but also in some of the colonial cities, um, the most important colonial cities of the big empires that also uh, were uh, possible, in part because hydrocarbon also allowed, uh, you know, more weapons manufacture and um, depend and the industrial revolution depended on more weapons manufacture. So there was a, a whole variety of different things that came into play. Never, never, never completely solving all the problems all at once, but certainly uh, that capitalists face, but certainly. Um, uh, allowing uh, governments different opportunities to uh, solve those problems for capitalists um, and uh, expand the capitalist economy across uh, across the world. There's an element in that in that uh, part of your book that that I thought was also interesting, which was how the, uh, the not just the, the role that the cities were playing in terms of uh, enabling capitalism, in terms of enabling imperialism, or the role that cities were playing uh, with their growth in terms of shaping uh, 
you know, like say the the Atlantic revolutions or anti-slavery, but the the uh, the unease with which or the, or the reaction, the negative reaction that these cities spawn. And, and I was thinking particularly about how you describe how the, these two famous 20th century figures, uh, Mao Zedong and and, and Mohandas Gandhi, are you know, had these very ambivalent relations with cities. You describe how Gandhi uh, wanted India to. Uh, reject cities and go back to life in the villages, and 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 how uh and, and how Mao uh you know mobilized the countryside uh, against the cities, and, and yet there's this sense that you know despite these very powerful movements, these literally history changing movements in, in one respect, they that the cities are are the one force that they can't fight in the end. That the cities are are becoming too vital too important too influential to where you really can't turn back the clock on them they, they've become too that the, the process of, of of the orthopolis becomes uh, is far too advanced to really uh change course at that yes i think that's right one of the things that i try to do in orthopolis is literally link earth and polis that is to link the forces uh, uh planetary forces or geophysical or biological forces that make up Earth and its relationship to the sun, and link them directly to what humans can do in cities that they couldn't otherwise, as I've said. And one of those big pieces is politics, just in general. I don't mean politics in the sense of there has to be a state or there has to be this kind of state or that kind of state, but political ac actions, networks, conflicts, um, alliances, um, institutions of all different kinds, um, that uh, enable uh, various different kinds of larger scale action and including states and empires and including, um, you know, firms, whether they're house, you know, merchant houses or um, or industrial capitalist concerns or financial banks or real estate or industrial, uh, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, insurance companies, uh, all of these firms um, uh, become uh, uh, you know, um, are, are directly related to the harvest of this geo, these, these sort of concentrated harvests of geo, um, geo solar energy, and 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 themselves create uh, volatile forces um, in, in cities. And so we see those volatile forces all the way along, and we see more of them than we really uh, thought possible from ancient times. I'm pretty sure now that there was much more instability in some of these cities that we thought of as authoritarian regimes all the way through. There's clear examples of, of upheavals of all kinds, popular upheavals of all kinds, well before the age of revolution. But there is something about the age of revolution and the age of hydrocarbon and the fact that they coincided. There's a lot of interesting things to be said about that. And I do that in the book, Trace It Out. Um, and yes, of course, by this time, you know, cities have really become, uh, they're not the only place where revolutions happen, but they are critical to revolutions. They cannot happen uh, if they don't happen really in capitals, for example. And so the big revolutions uh, in the American Revolution in Boston, New York, uh, Philadelphia, and other cities, in, then in Paris, later on the cities of um, Saint-Domingue, the, the capital of the, the, the sugar cap, uh, colony, the most important sugar colony of the Caribbean, and then across, of course, across Latin America all at once. And we now know also across big parts of uh, Asia, um, these, these, all, um, these all begin to, to, to happen. And they happen, you know, with, without doubt, um, because of various different spaces in cities that 
um, the people, uh, the revolutionaries, the reformists, the people who want to change the st structure of the state, find uh, that are outside the view of states and that allow uh, mobilization, organization, um, and uh, action, mass action in streets, um, at, in squares, uh, against palace doors, against the um, against the soldiers arrayed against them from military barracks and so on, um, using um, oftentimes municipal buildings that were repurposing them for revolutionary purposes, building the barricades and so on. All these urban uh, phenomena are central to, to revolution. And I think it's true that by the time uh, you know, I think there's there's a rationality behind both Gandhi's and Mao's approaches to uh, the countryside being important, um, and they found ways of making the countryside uh, uh, important to revolutionary change. But at that point, yes, there was in a way a kind of romanticization of um, of the countryside that had deep roots um, in the in the industrial revolution period and before even that said somehow this was purer than the cities and this is where the true um the true uh, virtuous uh, state would be developed um and they found you know that they had to make big compromises around that most of gandhi's big huge protests happened in cities the most effective ones um though you can't you can't you know you can't uh, sort of sneeze at the salt march, which was a big uh, mass mobilization across huge chunks of the Gujarat countryside. Um, uh, and, and you can't sneeze at the fact that, um, that Mao was able to create base camps in rural areas using, uh, using pe peasant militias um, that were g given, you know, pro um, um, property stolen from property owners by the Red Army. Those things were also very powerful, but ultimately he had to conquer the cities in order to take China and he knew that very well um, and made that decision in a very uh, you know, a clear clear moment. And uh, so it's, it's another example of where states require, ultimately require cities um, in, the, in the modern area. And uh, that's, that's a whole other uh, sub-theme of the book because in fact, there are some there are some interesting counterexamples. The Mongols didn't require cities, for example, to create the largest empire in early modern period. Uh, that much they did some. Um, on the other hand, there's a way in which they also um, in which they also are the exception that that proves the rule because they actually increase the size of the urban planet dramatically uh, in their rule and. Um, uh, you know, and, and many of the offshoots then also created their own big capitals that ran, for example, ran China and so on. But that's that's a that's a parenthesis, and it's 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 an important one to think about when you're thinking about an urban planet. If you're saying that cities are that important, you have to notice times when you know big powerful forces emerge from places outside cities as well, and and figure out how that fits into the narrative. Um, but anyway, uh, you know, in some sense, Mao and and, and Gandhi were a part of that um, exception that that, that proves proves the rule. And cities have ever since, you know, have always um, have have now become, you know, absolutely indispensable to any any state. You can't imagine a state running without huge huge amounts of uh, office space and uh, obviously parliaments. Um, palaces and and all the all the works <laughs> that uh, a state a state requires.
similarly to, to office buildings. You can't imagine, even post-COVID, when a lot of us were working away from offices, it's clear that offices are still going to be of very great importance, and office buildings are continually being built, even in the midst of a pandemic. So it's 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 not it's not that's not going to disappear anytime soon, even with things like the internet, for example. But um, those are those are just some observations from from what you just said. Yeah, and I was thinking about how that that points to uh, by the, at the end of your book, where you're uh, you know you're not predicting the future, but you're you're definitely you know hinting at the challenges that that lie ahead for Earthopolis. And of course, with the, the we talk about these, you know, this is a challenge where we talk about you know the the climate change and and, and, the, and the facts behind it, and about how in in the sense that you know cities have to be or the or the Earthopolis has to be part of that because it's not as though we can suddenly take the nearly eight billion people and say, okay, we're gonna you know go 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 back to nature and 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 do away with this this Earthopolis, which, you know, is, is such a, a, a critical dynamic. We have to work within it and that we can't, and, and because, you know, that that's part of who we are today. I agree. Yeah. And, you know, cities have been our, in some sense, for 6,000 years, cities have been our existential gamble. Uh, it, we've always said that um, we're going to build these things in order to get, you know, by, by, by concentrating more, power from sun and earth in order to gain some kind of advantage over the volatility of sun and earth um, in our um, in our lives. Um, and all religions are, you know, all world religions, especially ones in urban, but also all agricultural religions have some kind of propitiation of sun and earth and river and mountain and so on that um, just show um, how important that, that uh, gamble was and how we kind of knew it was there and had to fashion it in our own various forms of myth and pra religious practice and, uh, and so on. Um, so they've always been a gamble. And when we gambled with the ocean, it was even bigger. Uh, when we gambled with hydrocarbon, we came to the point where we're now gambling with um, the future of our own existence and that of much life on, on Earth in, in ways that we never have. And that's why, uh, you know, geologists are fighting so hard to have this um, new epoch uh, called the Anthropocene to say we've moved out of the Holocene. It looks like our climates are is becoming more volatile than it was um, under the Holocene. And there are many other markers of human impact, uh, the consequences of human impact um, due to the hydrocarbon uh, bargain uh, or hydrocarbon gamble, if you wish. Um, that uh, are, are so so evident, and uh, that, that's that's the you know in some sense you know the history of the urban planet as I write it has to be um, written in some in some sense from where we are now. There's no real way around that um, that we are looking back from a place where we really have created a, the only urban planet that we know of in the universe, one heavily dictated by. The fate of the the gamble that we made in cities, and we're we face it in uh, going forward in the fact that you know we, we we our cities are a big part, not the biggest part of the problem that we face. Um, the fact of urban our urban condition, whether you know beyond cities, huge industrial agricultural systems, so for example, just to begin with, many many other things. Um, the sort of urban condition in, under which we um, choose to have, you know, live our our civilization, puts us in a position where the our cities are 
at once creating the problem and are the only solution to the problem. So we have to really think hard about how we're going to use the power that cities give us um, and how we're going to change the face of cities in order to do that kind of thing. And one of them, of course, is that we're building a new hydrocarbon, um, you know, hydrocarbon harvesting, no, sorry, not uh, geosolar energy harvesting grid in the form of wind turbines and solar panels, which um, we hope will at least begin to, to turn the, the, um, the worst of the tide. Um, that's, that's, that's only one thing we can do, but it's, it's certainly, um, certainly an important and probably essential thing for us to do is to create a kind of basically an artificial, gigantic artificial hinterland for, um, for cities and all the towns and villages as well. <laughs> So that's that's one one little piece we're gonna have to do, and that's gonna take political action. That is only possible in cities, really. I think you know mass political action to be able to confront hydrocarbon capitalism, to confront the states that are so heavily enmeshed in it, uh, to confront the um, increasing authoritarianism of many of those states as they seek to uh, keep that bargain uh, uh, going, or that um, uh, are based in sort of the destabilization of, of that bargain that we're all experiencing now. Um, it's, it's going to be a, it's going to be a tough road ahead and, you know, no, no historian can predict the future in part because we explain why it's so unpredictable. And one of the answers to why history is so unpredictable is because yeah, we live in cities. Uh, cities are in some ways heighten the unpredictability of our politics, um, even as they increase the power of it. Uh, of our politics. And so that's why Earth and Opolis uh, should be linked in our analysis of our condition uh, as we currently face it. And no, we should know that that's a central part of um, any kind of uh, future we have in any kind of Anthropocene that uh, that is dawning uh, around us now. We appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you uh, tell us what you're working on now? Sure. Yeah, as I said, this uh, this the process of writing this was not just a kind of um, exercise in sort of compiling a lot of information and putting it all in one one possible narrative for um, you know global urban history as a whole. The, I, the as as I was going along, I realized that there were a lot. There's a lot in the history that um, could be useful for theoreticians um, and for urban historians more generally through theor uh, theory making. And I've been part of a effort within the Global Urban History Project to, um, to have urban historians think about their role in theory making. So um, I hope to put out some ideas that came from that that gen those those impulses uh, over the next uh, few months or, or you know half year or so that will um, maybe abstract some of this idea uh, some of the ideas in Earthopolis a little bit more but also try to show how the density of history the complexity um, the unpredictability of of um, urban history um, should color the way we think about cities as um, in terms of uh, their the, the theoretical dimensions um, that they that they um, you know endow to us as as, um, as humans on on this on this planet. Well, 
Carl, thank you very much for spending some time to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you very much, too. It's a wonderful experience.